Hello, and welcome to Beach House 34, the show that dives deep into true crime cases, revealing the truths behind crimes that reveal shocking secrets. Stories sure to make you just a little more paranoid, and maybe even lose sleep. Here's your host, Christine Wirth. Hello to all the new subscribers, and hello to the rest of the Beach House 34 family. Thank you to Ivy Perlitz, who has become a Patreon supporter over the past week. It's people like you that help the podcast grow. If you would also like a shout out in the show or access to my exclusive posts on Patreon and even the ability to vote for show ideas, consider becoming a Patreon. The $3 level that gets you all of these perks is strictly limited to just 100 people. So if you're interested, visit Beach House 34 podcast on Instagram and you'll see a link right there in the bio. Now, another way that you can help is just by giving the podcast a thumbs up or a comment on YouTube or even by subscribing through your favorite podcast platform. No matter what you choose to do, know that I am forever grateful. Thank you. In the late 1980s, Ohio had what they believed to be a serial killer on their hands. Male bodies specifically those of gay men, had been found strangled along Interstate 70 in Ohio. Now, the last known victim of what the police called the I-70 Strangler was found in 1990. After that, no more victims were located along this stretch of interstate. Then, in 1994, a child named Eric and his friend were playing in the heavily forested area of Eric's 18-acre estate. The two boys came across something buried in the dirt. They ran to the house and told Eric's mom that what he had found was a human skeleton. This is the story of Herb Baumeister. After Eric had told his mom, Julie, what they had found, Eric's mom then waited for Eric's dad who was Herb Baumeister, to arrive home. When he did, he was shown the skeleton and he explained, rather matter-of-factly, that the skull had once belonged to his father, who was a physician, and that Herb had it stored in the garage. But one day he was cleaning out the garage and just decided to bury it. Now Herb, Julie, and their children lived in an upscale neighborhood in Westfield, Indiana called Fox Hollow Farms. Now Westfield, you might be interested to know, is close to the Monin Trail. And if this rings a bell to you, it's because the Monin High Bridge Trail, which is also in Indiana, was the site of the Delphi murders. And I covered those in episodes numbers 13 and 17, if you're interested. So anyhow, let's continue. Herb Baumeister had been through a variety of jobs, but after working for a local thrift store for a few years, he thought he'd venture out and open up his own. With money borrowed from his mom, Herb opened up a store called Save-A-Lot. Now this is not to be confused with the grocery store of the same name. This thrift store sold used clothing and household goods, and Herb was able to secure a connection with a well-respected local charity called the Children's Bureau of Indianapolis. The first year, the shop did really well. So well 
that it allowed Herb and his wife, Julie, to open up a second store. Now, because of the success, they were able then to move to Westfield into a home in an area called Fox Hollow Farms. They purchased the home on contract, and this home was on 18 acres. It had four bedrooms, an indoor swimming pool, and a riding stable. That same year, a man by the name of Virgil Vandegriff, a professional private investigator and a retired major crime investigator from the Marion County Police Department in Indianapolis, who focused mainly on missing person cases, received a phone call. This call was from a mother who had reported her 28-year-old son, Alan, missing. Now, typically, these cases turn out to be runaways, or in this case, since Alan was 28 years old and an adult, he may have just left town without telling anyone. Virgil, however, still took the case. Uh, he discovered that Alan was a heavy drinker and he was also gay, which at the time wasn't popular in the Indianapolis community. The last time that Alan was seen was leaving a gay bar named Brothers. Virgil began his investigation and attempted to get anyone to contact him who might know Alan's whereabouts. Now, while Virgil investigated, he came across an article in a gay men's magazine about a man named Jeff Jones, who had also disappeared in mid-1993. Then in July, and this is just a month after he first received the phone call from Alan's mother, another disappearance. 34-year-old Roger Goodlett. He had left his mother's house to visit a gay bar, and he too ended up missing. Roger's mother also had come to Virgil for help in finding her son. Now, if you're wondering why so many people tended to visit Virgil and his PI firm, it's because of a few things. First, at the time in Indianapolis, and maybe still now, in order for someone to be considered missing, 24 hours have to have gone by. After the 24 hours, the case is then assigned to a detective. And if they don't find the person within 30 days, yes, 30 days, then the case goes to the missing persons bureau for them to investigate. Now, as you might imagine, not many people are very willing to wait this long to hear about their loved ones. A second, Virgil had a stellar local reputation in the community, and he was the first call people made when they didn't want to wait and they needed help. All these men that had gone missing were around the same age and had a similar physical appearance. Virgil was convinced that all three of these men, Alan, Jeff, and Roger, were related. Virgil and his investigator, Bill, decided to scour some gay bars and to attempt to talk with people who may have seen these missing men, but nobody would talk. One tiny bit of information they did receive was that Roger had left the bar, our place, with another man in a light blue car with an Ohio license plate. The description of this man was really vague and didn't really give them a whole lot of details. Then in August, two months after Alan's mother had contacted him, a man that we'll call Stephen, not his real name, contacted Virgil. Stephen had known Roger and had noticed that the missing person 
posters that Virgil and his team had been placing inside of local bars. Now, Stephen thought that he might have some helpful information for Virgil. So Stephen, he later told Virgil that he had been on a date with a man that he swore up and down was a serial killer. When Stephen went to the police to try to tell them this, they thought he was crazy. The FBI even suggested that he was on drugs. So after the man contacted Roger's mother, she is the one who suggested that he call Virgil. Stephen, who over the course of several weeks, visited Virgil's office and said he had come across this man whom he had actually ended up going on a date with at the 501 Club. He met him at the 501 Club, they took off, went on a date. Stephen said he had seen this guy before in other clubs, but he had never spoken to him. He described him as tall, skinny, and quiet. And one night, while visiting a bar, he again noticed this tall, skinny man. But what caught Stephen's attention was that this guy was just sitting at the bar staring at Roger's missing persons poster. So Stephen's gut instinct kicked in. And what he did is he started up a conversation with this tall, skinny stranger. The tall man introduced himself as Brian Smart. And even though Stephen kept trying to steer the conversation towards back to Roger, Brian Smart kept evading the issue. Instead, Brian asked Stephen if he wanted to head out with him for the evening. Brian said that he was a landscape artist from Ohio and he was currently living in a house just outside of town that was empty. He was preparing it for the new owners. Brian asked Stephen just to go there for a cocktail and a swim and Stephen agreed. Brian's car was a silver Buick that had Ohio license plates. And as they drove, they left the city and headed into the outskirts of town where they entered a community that had a name. Now, all Stephen could make out, because it was very dark, but all he could make out was the word farm. As they continued to drive, Brian drove up to a large home that was completely dark. They entered through the garage, went past several cars, and headed towards a stairwell that went downstairs. The stairwell went to the basement area, and this is where the pool was located. Stephen noticed that Brian had several mannequins staged all over the room around the pool, and they were all in different, unique poses. Brian's explanation was that he got lonely and that these mannequins simply kept him company. Brian then offered Stephen a drink, but Stephen turned it down and noticed that the demeanor in Brian seemed to change after he did this. So shortly after Stephen refused this drink, Brian then excused himself and left the room for a little bit. But when he came back, he, according to Stephen, seemed to be a different person. He was less subdued. Brian and Stephen then swam in the pool. And when Brian swam over to the side of the pool, he told Stephen that he had just learned something new. And he grabbed a hose that was lying beside the pool. Brian then said that he learned that if you choke someone while having sex, it was a fantastic rush. He then explained how it worked, that it squeezed the veins on the side of the neck, and you know that it's working 
because you can see the person's lips change color. Brian convinced Stephen to lay down so that he could do it to him. Stephen felt that the only way to really get to the truth was to play along with Brian. As Brian began to tighten the hose around his neck, Stephen pretended to pass out. He then felt the hose loosen up and Brian speak his name. At first, Stephen didn't respond. Brian then began to shake Stephen, and Stephen finally opened his eyes. Brian was incensed, screaming that Stephen had scared the shit out of him because in the past, there had been accidents. Stephen then, rather bravely, I might add, confronted Brian, asking if that's what happened to Roger. Brian didn't even respond. He just smiled. Eventually, Brian ended up falling asleep. And so what Stephen did is he decided to walk around the house because he did not buy the story about the house being empty or that he was even a landscaper. As he got upstairs and walked into the upstairs rooms, he found children's items and women's clothing. The house, although a mess, it still appeared as though people did in fact live in it. He headed back to the pool area thinking that he should just probably try and grab Brian's wallet to find out who he really was. But Brian woke up just as Stephen was going through his clothing. He never did find his wallet. After some back and forth conversation, uh, it took a little while, but Stephen finally convinced Brian to drive him back into the city. Brian said that he was impressed with Stephen and asked him to meet him at the 501 Club next Wednesday. Now, Stephen, who was now wholly convinced that Brian, or whatever his name was, was in fact the one who had killed his friend, Roger. After Stephen relayed this story to Virgil, Virgil then had one of his investigators hang outside the 501 Club the night that Stephen and Brian were supposed to meet, but Brian never showed up. The description of the location from Stephen uh, when he tried to give it was really vague. All that Virgil and his team had to go on was that the house was in a suburb and had the name Farm in the title. Now, even though Stephen had attempted to contact the police early on and had, you know, pretty much just been dismissed, Virgil thought that he knew of one person who could help him at the police department. And that person was Mary Wilson. And she was a detective within the missing persons area. Mary had actually been investigating reports of other missing Indianapolis men, namely 20-year-old Richard Hamilton, 21-year-old Johnny Bayer, 28-year-old Alan Livingstone, and others. And her cases went back to the early 90s. And all of them were gay men. When Mary heard about Stephen's story, and when Virgil told her about it and about his night that he had had with Brian, she drove Stephen through the suburbs, hoping to jog his memory as to where this guy Brian had taken him. In the meantime, officers in plain clothing were dispatched to the local gay bars in order to question bartenders and patrons about these missing men. When Mary didn't have any luck with Stephen trying to identify where he had been taken, she then asked Stephen if he could please try and get Brian's license plate number. She knew that eventually Stephen would run into Brian again, and Stephen agreed. In the meantime, 
Virgil had one of his investigators check around the suburbs for anything that might be related to Stephen's statement. When this investigator came across a sign that said Fox Hollow Farms, and upon entering the area filled with large homes, he saw one that seemed to resemble the one that Stephen had described. Now, the investigator didn't notice a swimming pool, but thought that he'd just go ahead and take some photos and see if Stephen actually recognized anything. Unfortunately, he didn't. The investigator did, however, find out that this particular home that he was looking at belonged to a family with the last name of Baumeister. Many months later, Stephen was out and about and was surprised to see that Brian Smart had just come into the bar where he was at. Stephen then struck up a conversation with Brian, and when Brian started to leave, according to an interview with Virgil that aired on WTHR in Indianapolis in 2022, as Brian left the bar, Stephen stood up on the bar and screamed that the guy was a serial killer, someone go get his license plate number. Once Stephen had this information, he quickly relayed it to Mary Wilson. When the plate was checked, it came back as registered to Herb Baumeister. Herb Baumeister lived in Westfield, Indiana, in an estate called Fox Hollow Farms. He was married and had children. The house, Mary also learned, had a swimming pool in the basement. Now, after following Herb Baumeister around for some time, detectives finally just ended up walking into one of his store locations and spoke with him. They told him that they were investigating some missing men in the area and that he was a suspect. They asked to search his home. He refused and said any further communication was to be done through his attorney. Mary Wilson then decided to try a different tactic and instead she approached Herb's wife, Julie. Now Herb had just called Julie after the detective, detectives had visited him and he told Julie that the police were looking at him in regarding to regarding some thefts and that under no circumstances was Julie to speak with the police. When Mary spoke with Julie though, she told her the truth as to why she was there. And after she told Julie this, Julie was in shock. She was shocked, she was speechless. This was not the man that she knew. She also refused to let them search the house, even after finding out that they were investigating her husband regarding these missing men. Mary then gave Julie her card and told her to call if she changed her mind. In the meantime, and not wanting to just sit around waiting for Julie, Mary wanted to get a search warrant for the house, but the county where the Baumeisters lived wasn't in her jurisdiction. So when Hamilton County, the county where Baumeister did reside, was contacted, no one would issue one. No one knows why. Uh, the theory was that maybe they thought that Baumeister was a model citizen and they didn't want to upset, upset him. Uh, maybe it was because they just didn't want to believe that he was guilty. Essentially, they demanded more proof in order to approve a search warrant. So six months go by and then to Mary's surprise, Julie calls. Julie gave her permission to search the property. 
Now, part of Julie's change of heart was that the business was failing. The Children's Bureau uh, had decided to cancel its contract with the two Save-A-Lot uh, locations, which meant that essentially the stores were on their own. In addition to this, and the police wanting to question Herb, Herb had seemed to really kind of go off the deep end. Julie found that life at home was just in turmoil, and it got to the point where both Julie and Herb had both started divorce proceedings, and Julie felt she had no loyalty left to Herb, so she gave her permission to go ahead and search the property. Julie had also been holding back something that had bothered her for years. She was now ready to talk about the skeleton that her son Eric had found in their backyard. So when Mary and two very skeptical Hamilton County officials arrived at the Baumeister home to perform a search, Herb was not there. Neither was their son Eric. They had gone off to visit Herb's mother and Julie felt that this was just the perfect time to have authorities come out and investigate. So when Mary Wilson and the two Hamilton County officials arrived, Julie first took them out to the location where Eric had found the bones. She told them that when they were found, she had believed what Herb had told her, that it was a skeleton from his father's medical practice and that he had just moved it from the garage and buried it. But her husband's recent change in attitude and his overall demeanor made her scared. So she decided to show the police. As the investigators made their way to the backyard and they looked a little closer, they realized that what they thought at first were just pebbles that they were standing on turned out to be pieces of bone, remnants of skeletons. Some of the pieces had even been burned. Some of these were gathered up and sent off to a forensic anthropologist who, very shortly after examining them, contacted the investigators to tell them that, yes, they are human. Homicide investigators from Indianapolis then just descended on the home and the grounds of the Baumeister 18-acre estate, searching for more clues. Now, the goal was to walk the grounds and place a flag wherever bones were located. Within just 30 minutes, there were almost 100 different markers. Since the police began searching the farm, police found the bones of five adults, including a jawbone, several teeth, three left wrists, and many miscellaneous bone fragments. They also found remnants of 12-gauge shotgun shells and a pair of handcuffs. And as mentioned before, some of these bones were charred. Now at the same time that this ground search is taking place, other investigators started searching inside the home. They found the pool, the mannequins, and a hidden camera placed over the pool area. Herb, at this point, he was still at his mom's house along with his son, Eric, and he had no idea what was happening at his house. Julie, in the meantime, started to become frightened for her son. She was worried that if Herb did find out, Eric might actually be in danger. So an attorney drew up some paperwork that gave Julie custody of Eric. And because they were going through a divorce at the time, it didn't seem unusual to Herb when police showed up at his mom's house with paperwork to take Eric with them. 
he just thought it was all part of the divorce. By the end of June, police found bones from three human bodies. Investigators say that the bones had actually been in the area between six months and one year. The cause of death had not yet been determined for any um, of the individuals, although uh, obviously some officials noticed that some of these bones had been exposed to fire. They weren't sure whether the, this fire occurred before or after the bodies arrived at the site. One official said that she knew the homeowner had burned brush in the area where the bones were located. Now, when it was all said and done, at the time, over 5,500 pieces of bone were found, including some that had appeared on an adjacent property. So in total, this would amount to being approximately 11 human beings. Now, some wonder how Herb could have made this work, right? Where were Julie and the kids at the time? Well, it turns out that Julie often took the children, especially for months at a time, and usually during the summer, to Herb's mom's lake house. And the time period when she and the children were gone coincided with the disappearances of the men. Now, Herb eventually did find out what was going on at his property and left his mother's home really abruptly. He then called his younger brother, Brad, and asked him for some money, and he said he was on a business trip. So his brother went ahead and sent him the money, not knowing at the time what was happening at Herb's house. Now, once Brad did learn about what was going on, he then called the detectives and told them that Herb had just called him from somewhere in Michigan wanting money. The detectives told him to contact them again the next time that Herb called. Herb had entered Canada, and again, while in Canada, he called Brad for some more money. Now, Brad again complied and tried to get his brother to tell him that the police needed to talk with him. You know, where are you? This was on the 28th of June. On July 3rd, Herb Baumeister, still in Canada, drove to Pinery Park, took out a 357 Magnum, and shot himself in the head. According to Virgil, Herb, before shooting himself, had first built up sand so that when he laid on it, it would be taller than the ground around him, sort of like an altar. He then surrounded the location with dead birds. When everything was finally set, he shot himself. Now he did leave behind a four page note, but the note only mentioned his stress over the divorce and the failing stores. Nothing in the note mentioned the men or anything that was happening at his property. By November of 1996, police had compiled a list of six missing Indianapolis men with links to the city's gay community. The police discovered that Baumeister had used two aliases at many of the downtown gay bars in Indianapolis. And one of the aliases was the name of a man who was among the six that were listed as missing. The six missing men were Johnny Bayer, 20, Alan Broussard, 28, Jeff Jones, 31, Michael Kiern, 46, Alan Livingston, 28, and Jerry Williams Comer, 34. All six 
of these men disappeared from 1993 to 1995. One of the sticks, six still missing, Alan Livingston, uh, disappeared actually on the same day, August 6th, as another resident, Manuel Resendez, who was actually one of the four bodies that had been identified in September. Baumeister used the name of Michael Kiern, one of the missing men, as one of his aliases at downtown bars. And of course, the other one that he used was that of Brian Smart. So two years after Baumeister's death, police had concluded that he also had killed nine other young men whose partially nude bodies were found dumped into shallow streams along I-70 across central Indiana and western Ohio during the 1980s. In other words, the I-70 Strangler cases. And the reason for this was that Baumeister occasionally made trips to Ohio for the couple's thrift store business. It wasn't until after Baumeister's death, addition also, that his wife found out that six months after the couple had married in 1971, Baumeister had been admitted to LaRue D. Carter Memorial Hospital, and this is a state psychiatric facility in Indianapolis. Now, she knew that he was there. He spent about 50 days there, and while he was there, he was diagnosed with a compulsive personality disorder. Now, a person evidently with this disorder can function normally in society, but often exhibits behavior that is detail-oriented, uh, perfectionist, and rigid. And as I said, Julie knew about the hospitalization, but she never learned about his diagnosis until after he was already dead. It was also learned that while Herb was a child, his father began to notice some odd behavior in him. Uh, so much so that he took Herb to see a, psych a psychologist. Now, Herb was diagnosed at a young age with schizophrenia, but no further medical records were ever found indicating that he was ever treated for this condition. By the time this whole situation was said and done, with everything going on at Fox Hollow Farms, it was estimated that 25 men had fallen victim to the serial killer Herb Baumeister. Only eight had been identified. Now, as time went on, new owners purchased the home. And over the past 15 years, they have found more bones and bone fragments. The current owners, Robert Graves and his wife, Vicki, Robert Graves said that we don't go looking for them, but they do turn up and I take them to the University of Indianapolis. In December of 2022, so very recently, 11 cadaver dogs were actually taken to the property in an attempt to find even more bone fragments and the dogs hit in multiple locations. Authorities are asking anyone who had a male family member go missing from the mid 1980s to the mid 1990s to please submit DNA to see if they can match to some of the remains. Uh, they urge you to call, and I will have this in the show notes, to call the Hamilton County Coroner's Office at 317-770-4415 just to do a simple cheek swab DNA sample. Now, while what happened on this property and continues uh, to, they continue to find all of these different bones, all of this is so reprehensible. The property in and of itself remains very unsettled with stories of hauntings. Now in 2006, Rob Graves 
and his wife, the one who still owns the property, and his wife, Vicky, purchased Fox Hollow Farm for what they called a steal. Vicky thought it was breathtaking, the pool where many of the crimes had occurred and was located in the basement. It was an 18 by 36 foot pool and it had large sliding glass doors that led out into the large yard and the trees beyond. You know, a perfect place to commit your crimes and hide the bodies. They didn't know why no one had yet purchased this property. So as they're being taken around the home and shown the home, something was really nagging at Rob about the house. He knew that it struck a familiar chord and then it finally dawned on him. So he flat out asked the realtor, he's like, is this the place that Herb Baumeister had lived in? And when he said that he, it was, Rob wasn't surprised, but then the realtor said, well, you know, this is why it was such a good deal. So they felt that all of this was in the past. You know, it was over, redo, let's just start all over. We love this place. So they went ahead and purchased the home. The first really strange thing that Vicki remembered was when she was vacuuming. Now, Rob and Vicky, they had two teenage boys who loved to use the pool. And as such, they would track in dirt and such from the outside. So Vicky one day headed down to the pool in the basement to vacuum up the mess. She had started vacuuming when all of a sudden the vacuum just stopped. She thought, oh, she must've just pulled the cord out of the wall. I mean, right, I mean, who of us haven't done that? You know, when she checked, the plug was in fact laying on the floor. So she plugged it back in and continued vacuuming. A little while later though, the vacuum stopped again. And when she looked back, the vacuum cord and the extension cord that it was plugged into were pulled apart and each cord had separated about 12 inches. She immediately, she didn't feel alone. She also felt that something else was there that just simply didn't want her there. Now, Rob, in the meantime, Rob had a coworker named Joe LeBlanc who lived nearly an hour away from the workplace. And he always seemed to have trouble getting to work on time. So Joe had begun to start looking for apartments that were closer to the job location. Rob mentioned to him that, hey, we have an empty apartment on our property and wondered if Joe would be interested in it. And so Rob went ahead, he gave him an overview about the history of the place. But since it had been so long since the crimes occurred and this, you know, people just tended to, hey, it's been in the past, don't worry about it, it's over. Joe didn't give it any thought. So he agreed to move into the apartment on Fox Hollow Farm. After Joe had moved in all of his things, including his dog, Fred, he was exhausted. So what he did is he decided to lay down and ended up falling asleep. During his nap, he remembers having a very vivid nightmare where he felt as if he should run, run as far as he could because something terrible was chasing him. The dream actually startled him so much that he jumped up from a deep sleep and did actually begin to run. He ended up smashing into a door. Now he didn't mention anything to Rob or Vicky. To Joe, this was just some really weird, bad dream, right? Over the next few days, Rob had begun working on the outside of the house when Vicky came home from work. And as they're both standing outside having a conversation, Vicky noticed something out of the corner of her eye. So she looks and she sees down in the yard near the woods, a man with a red t-shirt on. Now his back was to her 
and she thought maybe he was a trespasser. All of a sudden, this man in the red t-shirt begins to walk towards the woods, and Vicky realized that she couldn't see this man's legs. The man then just literally disappeared into a tree. She couldn't believe what she had just seen. She told Rob, and Rob thought that this person might have been what Rob referred to as a serial killer groupie. So they walked down there together to where Vicky had seen this man. And when they got there, no one was around. Now, Vicky, she was beside herself. She admits that she is the biggest skeptic when it comes to unexplainable things. She is a scientist by trade and things have to be proven to her. But she swears to this day, she knows what she saw. And it was a man in a red shirt who had no legs and disappeared. Joe, in the meantime, the new apartment tenant and co-worker um, of Rob's, he had been living in the apartment now for about a week uh, when one night he was settling in for the evening when there was a knock at the door. He hollered out to let them know that it would be a minute, but the knocking was incessant. It was as if someone desperately needed him to come to the door. Now the door to his apartment had a large old fashioned knocker in the shape of a horse's head on the front. Now after he went to the door, he opened it up and he answered it, no one was there. The apartment is actually located um, at the top of a staircase and no one was on or around the stairs. And so he walked over to the railing where he then looked out over the property and couldn't see anybody. So of course this caused him anxiety and he went back inside the apartment, locked and deadbolted the door and sat down to watch television when out of the corner of his eye, he noticed something near his bedroom. When he went into the bedroom, of course, nothing was there. A little while went by and Joe had decided to take his dog Fred for a walk. Now as Joe and his dog are walking heading towards the really long driveway, Joe hears a sound from the woods. And it wasn't just him. Fred had also taken notice and had perked up his ears and started growling. All of a sudden, Fred takes off towards the woods and Joe looks to where Fred's going. And then Joe saw a man in a red shirt who was walking towards the trees. As the man walked into the woods, he just faded away. Fred continued to run into the woods. And, you know, Joe really didn't want to follow him, but he had to get his dog. So he carefully made his way into the trees, not knowing what would happen. He's calling for his dog. Not long after he's inside this little forest area, he again saw the man in the red shirt. He was so scared that he ended up telling Vicky about what he had seen, thinking that surely she's going to think he was crazy. But to his surprise, Vicky told Joe that she had seen the exact same thing. On yet another night, Joe was fast asleep in his apartment when again, he heard knocking on his door. Joe hollered at the person asking what they wanted, but nobody replied. The knocking just continued over and over and over and over. It literally would not stop. So Joe just finally walked over to the door and placed his hand on the wood 
on his side of the, the door. He could feel the vibration of the knocking. It was so strong. He opened the door and again, no one was there. But this time, something was different. The knocker on the front of the door was standing straight out as if someone was still standing there holding it in place. And then after a time, it just fell. As Joe checked outside, he again couldn't shake the feeling that he's being watched. He then turned around, went back inside of his apartment, locked the deadbolt and turned around when his dog Fred started growling at him. At that moment, Joe then heard what sounded like the doorknob to his front door turning. As he turned to look, he watched as the doorknob turned back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And then suddenly, without warning, the door flew open so hard, it hit the wall on the inside of the apartment and wood chips went flying. The next thing Joe knew, he is face to face with a man who appeared to be terrified and was running for his life. Joe fully believes that he had come face to face with one of the victims and that the man in the red shirt had also been a victim of Herb Baumeister. So Joe and Vicki, they then begin to research the case, especially information about the victims. Rob contacted the local news stations to get some of the footage from the time when the Herb Baumeister case was active. So as they're watching this footage and the newscast starts to show photos of the victims, Joe realized that the man who was running for his life in his apartment was the man he was currently looking at on the television screen. Now he was fully convinced that these were the victims of Herb Baumeister. Even after they had gone through all of this, the hauntings still continued. There was another time as Joe let Fred out to roam in the woods of the property. Joe came across something just laying on the ground. What he had found was a fully intact human femur. It wasn't buried. It was just laying right there on top of the ground as if Joe were specifically meant to find that bone. He immediately told Rob and Vicky what he had found. And according to Vicky, the location where this was found was near where the guy in the red shirt had been seen. The lead detective who actually took the case was Detective Kerry Milligan of the Hamilton County Sheriff's Department. So Rob called the police department and told them, hey, we have this bone. So Detective Milligan then came out to the property and walked the three of them through the scene, just like it was when he was there investigating her Baumeister at the time. He personally felt as if he were just right back to that day and relayed to Rob and Vicky, Vicky how the crimes happened within the pool area, how there were mannequins staged all around the pool, and the fact that a camera was located in one of the corners to catch everything that happened within the pool. Unfortunately, they never did find all of these videotapes that Herb had evidently taken of himself murdering these men. The bone was taken into forensics to see if they could identify who it belonged to. One of Joe's friends, now Joe had been living on the property for some time, and one of his Joe's friends had wanted to see his place for a while. So he came over one night 
and Joe and his friend, as well as the teenage sons of Rob and Vicky, they're all hanging out in the pool. Without warning, Joe felt a pair of hands around his neck, and Joe felt as if he were being choked. Now, at first he thought this was a joke and that it might have been his friend or one of the boys, but they were at the total opposite end of the pool. As his friend turned to look at him, Joe put his hands up to his neck and looked panicked. At that moment, he knew exactly what Herb Baumeister's victims must have felt. Later, as he's in his apartment working on his computer, he hears an odd sound. Now, as he looks, he then notices what wasn't there before, multiple knife marks on the wall inside his apartment. Now, Joe, he had watched ghost hunting shows before, and he knew that he had a recording device within the apartment. So what he did is he shut off everything in the apartment that would make noise, and he set out attempting to record. He would ask questions as he walked through the apartment, and even he admitted that he felt, quote, extremely silly while he was doing it. But all of a sudden, Fred started growling. So Joe stopped recording and started to go back through what he had recorded. After Joe had asked the question, is there anyone here? There is a response. And what it says is the married one. Now, all of Herb's victims were single males. The only one who was married was Herb himself. Joe was convinced it was him in that apartment. Now, Rob and Vicki still own the property. I'm not sure, certain, um, but I'm sure that by at this point in time, Joe has moved on. But all three of them will still talk about the case and the subsequent hauntings that they've experienced. They all have no doubt that they had and continue to run into the unsettled spirits of Herb Baumeister's victims at Fox Hollow Farm. Now, the serial killer case of Herb Baumeister is ongoing. Um, it is unknown how many additional victims that they will end up locating behind his former estate. Um, and again, authorities are asking anyone who had male family members go missing from the mid-1980s to the mid-1990s to please submit DNA to see if they can match to some of the remains. Again, they urge you to call the Hamilton County Coroner's Office. And again, I'll also have this phone number in the show notes under sources. Also, if you'd like to read up more on this, on this case, I urge you to check out the book, Where the Bodies Are Buried by Fanny Weinstein and Melinda Wilson. And lastly, I want to point out that if it wasn't for the diligent hard work of one man, Virgil Vandegrift, it's likely that none of these men would have ever been found. And to this day, multiple families wouldn't have any closure. He truly went above and beyond to bring this serial killer into the light. Thank you all so much for listening. I appreciate you. I know I say that a lot. I really, really do mean it. Um, as a reminder, if you do enjoy this podcast and want to become a supporter along with extra perks, consider becoming a Patreon. Again, you can go to patreon.com, beachhouse34, or uh, the easy way is to just go to the link by visiting beachhouse34podcast on Instagram, and the link is right there in the bio. 
Thank you all so much. I appreciate each and every one of you. I will be back very soon with another episode.